Welcome to Central Line, the AHA podcast. This is the official podcast of the American Animal Hospital Association, dedicated to simplifying the journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine for every member of the veterinary team. Here's your host, Dr. Katie Berlin. Hi, welcome back to Central Line. I'm your host, Katie Berlin. I have a guest today with us from uh, the the icy north, <laughs> which is how I always not think yet, of Canada. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know in my head it's like iced over all the time, and it's I'm like it's not the North Pole. It is actually just Canada, and Canada is very beautiful. Um, Mike Pownell, welcome to Central Line. Hi, Katie. How are you? Thank you for uh, inviting me. Would you mind giving us a little introduction to who you are and what it is you're passionate about? Sure. So, um, veterinarian, um, class of 2001, graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in the cold, cold, cold north of Canada. Um, I'm an equine vet, so odd for this podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, so my wife and I founded our practice, McKee Panel Equine Services, and now we have three locations over the greater Toronto area. Uh, with about 15 vets, 30 support staff. Uh, 10 years ago, I completed an MBA, and since then I've been doing a lot of splitting my time between uh, running my own practice, but also doing a lot of consulting with vets literally across the world from Australia, the Middle East, Europe, all across North America, focusing a lot on human resources and marketing. So you have seen a You've been around the, the veterinary community block a few times, is basically a what couple. you're saying. Yeah. Yes, a couple. Um, and as an equine vet, I'm really excited to get your take on, on a lot of, of challenges that the veterinary profession faces in general, which is what mm-hmm. we're really going to talk about today is where we can use, um, you know, the, the bridging the gaps between our different areas of veterinary medicine to get a better understanding of how we can do better work and serve our clients well and feel well and do well ourselves. Um, Absolutely. There's so many similarities. So yeah, yeah. Glad to have this call. I, I'm one of those people that wanted to be an equine vet. Um, you know, and I went into vet school for about five minutes, then I realized that it just wasn't, that was not going to work out. And it's probably good because my back would have given out after like year two. <laughs> you know what? But when everybody says that equine practice is so tough, and I'm like, yes, but we don't have scratchy, bitey cats. Yeah, truth. Truth. Um, and people who did not grow up around horses, I think, would rather do almost anything than be an equine vet. But as a horse lover myself, I um, I do envy all that time with them um, that you guys get. So, um, but speaking of that, you know, I, I don't currently ride, but I, that was always my area, you know, going to the barn was kind of my escape from things. Do you have a third space where you don't have to be Dr. Mike or the boss or, you know, the consultant where you can just be yourself and kind of lose yourself in what you're doing? Well, you know, just being at home with my wife and our, our four cats. Uh, but you know what I I really enjoy a is traveling. My wife and I travel a bit, but um, when it's the end of the day or weekends, love getting out and hiking. Hmm. Uh, just you know, the weather right now and it's the end of September. It's just beautiful. It's just I want to be outside as much as possible. Yeah, same here, Colorado provides un, unlimited places to do that. And so it feels very hard to stay inside all day right now. Um, it's a good problem to have. And especially because we both know both, you know, where you are in Colorado and in Canada, winter will come. So let's it enjoy will. it while we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons I moved out here is because we get so much sun, even while it's cold. And um, at least that helps you kind of grin and bear it a little bit better. I just, 
I like being outside all year, and so uh, Pennsylvania was a little bit less hospitable. Just got real gray. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, so today we're we're coming together. Actually, we met because uh, we were introduced by our friends at Care Credit, who, yep. as we know, are are big supporters of Central Line. They're our sponsor this year. They've been such great support for us and of the better the veterinary profession and community in general. They really do um, have their hearts in a great place. And um, and Synchrony did a study, the Equine Lifetime of Care study, um, not too long ago, and um, that's what we are sort of coming together to talk about is um, what, you know, what was found in that study and what can we learn from it? So can you just give us a little bit of background on what that study talked about and, um, you know, and sure. the big so findings you think are relevant? Yeah. So they talked to about 1,200 uh, U.S. horse owners and from the ages of 18 to 79. Um, and there was some, stir- uh, you know, Surveys, but they also reached out to you know some key influencers to get some more information. And what they're trying to do is really understand the financial, emotional, and psychological effects of the cost of equine care. And I think that's one thing that really makes the professions different, uh, or the species different. Is you know uh, equine care is much more expensive, I would say, on an annual basis, uh, just the upkeep and the regularity of things. And so they really want to understand the, you know, what's the average horse owner? What are they involved with? What industries are they involved with? You know, and what do they spend? And so um, just, I'm not going to get too deep into the data, but about of the people that responded, about a quarter of them were competitors, uh, a quarter were backyard or pasture horses, and half of them were recreational. And then um, the generational types, half were boomers, uh, 19% were millennial, 24% Gen X, uh, the rest would be Gen Z or did not want to talk about it. And so the, you know, the, the cost per year uh, to have a horse, so if you're just a backyard, just a pasture horse, it's close to 12000 a year. Um, recreational, just over 16000 and competitive, close to 37000 um, what I found, what I took away from this and was interesting for my own practice was that, and I think this would apply to companion animal too, and I'm re- really happy to get your feedback though, is that 85% of responders feel some sort of stress about the expenditures on the horse. Um, generationally, the older you are, which probably means you're a bit, you know, you have a bit more money saved, you're a little bit more financially secure. The older you are, the less anxious, you know, so, um, the younger you are, you know, like they said, like 93% of millennials feel anxiety about the expenses involved with their horse. It's all those trips Uh, to Starbucks, you know. Oh yeah, it's just it. all the Starbucks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. If they just didn't avocado those, toast. If they didn't get all that stuff, they'd be fine. <laughs> so, but here was interesting. So, eighty-three percent of horse owners feel prepared for the expense of owning a horse, um, but if we remember that eighty-five percent feel stress, and the reason why is that most of the time, I think this is key. They underestimate the cost or the total cost of care, mm. or they underestimate how much an emergency is going to cost. And so their actual expenses in this report are often three to four times higher than what they were thinking of spending. So even though they've saved some money or they have a little nest egg put aside for you know, that rainy day or something that's going to happen, 
it's often not enough. And when something happens, they're ill-prepared. So I thought that was mm-hmm. pretty interesting. And, the, and again, the younger they are, uh, the more this is a bigger stress. Do you just, I, I don't think this is in the study, but um, just from your perspective, having been in this business for a while, do you feel like the demographics of horse ownership are changing? Um, the way that we see like millennials and Gen Z um, really, you know, going all in on pet ownership and like, you know, having pets instead of children, like buying houses so their dogs can have a yard and stuff like that. Like, but do you see either something parallel or inverse happening in horse ownership because the costs are so high? What we look at with horses and what we see time after time is that, you know, in general, I mean, there are some disciplined uh, differences, but in general, our key horse owner will be uh, a professional woman over the age of 40. Um, <laughs> and to, and a lot till about <laughs> 70. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what happens is, is that often people are involved in horses when they're young or mm-hmm. in teenagers, they drop out because of school. And then they need to start a life. And so, you know, whether it's a career, family, having, uh, you know, a spouse, what have you. And then when there's a little bit of stability as they get into their 40s, then they're like, okay, now I have the time and the resources to get back into horses again. We see this time and time again. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. There's no reason that would have changed. And I feel like, um, you know, that that's essentially going to be my trajectory as I look into getting back into horses now in my 40s um, when I can, you know, do that and not feel so much guilt about like having a roof over my head and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, but it is definitely, um, it, it's, it is such an expensive pursuit. And it really, you know, it doesn't surprise me that people say they feel prepared, but also anxious, because I would say that when I had horses as an adult. Um, and I really didn't have the money to support the lifestyle, but I, I really wanted them in my life. I was anxious about the cost all the time, but also knew it was going to be a lot when it happened. Um, when, you know, horse owners, I feel like from a young age are sort of trained to like, to see vet care as expensive and to know that everything costs a lot. Um, and this could just be a perception of mine because when, I was working in the vet clinic, you know, it seemed like dog, dog owners, especially, and I'm thinking about people who like, like here in Colorado, everybody hikes with their dog, takes some paddle boating, like bikes with the dog running alongside those dogs are going to get hurt more Mm -hmm. than your average, you know, house dog, like my chihuahua and kind of like horses, you know, you do stuff, there's a risk with that. Um, And many of them are totally unprepared for how much it costs to like, say, do a TPLO or, um, or hospitalize the dog when it eats poisonous mushrooms or something like that. Um, do you think that that's just, is that just a perception that I have just because I did grow up with horses? Or do you feel like um, people in general are like, yeah, horses are really expensive and I'm not going to be all that surprised when I get that bill? I won't like it. Yeah. So I think people realize that just the ongoing care of horses is expensive because you've got to stable them, you've got to pay for a farrier, but it's always that surprise. And I guess I imagine it'd be the same way with companion animal. If, you know, you know, they swallow something, we have four cats and all of a sudden we've got to bring it to the vets and, 
You know, you we have nothing to compare to because fortunately, an emergency is rare. You know, I, I yeah. think of my own life. So five years ago, we had a bad storm. A bunch of tiles came off our roof. We had to get the roof redone. Thankfully, we had insurance. I can tell you, though, that the cost of what I thought the roof repair was going to do be was about three times what it actually was. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, thank God for insurance. But yeah. we, we, you know, if you're doing it all the time, if you've got a horse that's always sick or a dog that's always sick or a cat, you sort of get an idea what it is. But when it's this random encounter mm-hmm. and, you know, not only is it expensive, but you're emotionally distressed and the combination are, are tough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's also a, another factor, which is, you know, when a lot of care is being provided on the farm, mm-hmm. um, you know, there might be wound care or something like there are a lot of stuff that there's a lot of stuff that horses have go wrong that doesn't necessitate them being brought to an equine facility. And I don't remember ever getting like an estimate a treatment plan to look at. I mean, maybe we talked about cost a little bit, you know, the vet would sort of say, oh, it's going to cost about this much to do this injection or to, you know, do this treatment. But for the most part, it was like, just do it because we got to do it. And here's the plan. And I, and I just said, yes, because the horse is standing there and it needs it. And, um, and I, that, that seems to me to be very different from the plan that a lot of veterinary hospitals have now, which is to present a treatment plan, like a paper estimate in front of the client and go through it itemized, you know, so that the client sees that total before they're at the checkout. Whereas with the equine vet, I often just got a bill in the mail and that was like very scary. Is that changing now or is that still what happens? That's starting to change. Uh, people want estimates, you mm-hmm. know, so if you're going out there for a colic or an emergency, you know, you could tell the, you know, people want to know because you know, I could do something or our practice could do on something on the farm that's going to be, let's say, a thousand dollars. But if we're, our medications are not, our treatments are not resolving it and we re- have to refer to a specialist, so a colic surgery, for example, no, we can treat that at the farm, let's say, $750. But if you go to the vet school or a referral facility and there's a, you know, a surgery and it's, you know, time in the hospital, all of a sudden your bill's at 10000 Oh my God, it adds up so fast. It adds like up by so the quickly. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, you need to prepare people because, mm-hmm. and I think you need to be realistic with them that, you know, hey, your horse is 26, the odds of them surviving the surgery are low, um, you know, and, and uh, people just want to be informed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we have found, no matter what we're doing, even just um, not an emergency, but a w- bigger one-time expense. So like doing a pre-purchase exam where we're going to examine the horse before somebody buys it, they can get quite, quite pricey depending on the amount of x-rays. And so you can talk to people and they're like, oh, we want to barely do any x-rays. We just want to do a physical. So we're like, okay, fine. And, and we've quoted it. Everything is out there. But then we're like, you know what? We need to x-ray the fetlock or, you know, a, a joint. And, you know, x-rays in the quote are, let's say, $70 each. At the time, people are really poor at mathematics. <laughs> so they think of the 70 and they're like, oh, that's not bad. Okay, yeah, so I can do that. Eight x-rays later, then yeah. they're like, oh my gosh, that's almost $600. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So the more we can spend the time to prepare them and to have the discussion of what the cost is, it's it's essential. I mean, I really, I think, you know, a key competency of being a vet now is is your ability to communicate. and yes. And this is a big part of it. Do you think people are more likely to say yes to a large estimate if they if they know they don't have to pay it right away? You know, like at the vet clinic, you got to just 
hand over the credit card right away. And the equine vet, you know, you're going to get a bill in the mail, but that's like a future you problem. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, one of our vets told me told us something once a while ago, and I thought it was really um, a great insight. Is you know, when you're presenting what the cost could be, and maybe you're going to give them a couple of options. Like you know, if this was money was no option, I would do this. But you know, obviously money is an option. It is for most of us. So this may be a good well, alternative. Still great medicine, but an alternative. And when they get silent, they're not thinking like, oh, I don't want to pay for this, but they're often thinking like, okay, what do I have to give up to afford this? Because mm-hmm. as you said earlier, I mean, horses are similar to dogs or cats or other animals in that they have become pets. And people are like, okay, what? This, I'll give up this vacation. You know, maybe I'll put off another year for that new deck on the house or what have you. So that, you know, they want to do what's best for their horse. And so they just need to think about it. So, but I think, you know, and this is, you know, that tie in with, with care credit. And that is when they have that option of like, okay, there's a way I can pay for this over time. You can pay this in advance or pay down the road a little bit. Uh, Then that's okay. I can budget that. Yeah. That definitely makes it more palatable. Um, and I, I used my first care credit card to pay for my cat's dental last fall because almost it was four grand because he, he had like the CT and all the stuff, you know, and um, and I was really grateful to have that option then um, because it did seem much more palatable to me. Sure. C- could I have made it work? Yes. Would I have paid a lot in interest if I had to pay it, on, you know, right then on a regular credit card and then pay it off over time like I ended up doing? That would have been, been very expensive. So. Um, I definitely, that's an option that I didn't even know about when I had a horse. Um, so what about the advice that we're given? I don't know about you, but in vet school, so I graduated in 09 and we were told that vets should stay out of the cost conversation. This is, you know, obviously mostly small animal focused. Um, and we, we should send a technician in, you know, or another staff member to go over the estimate and, you know, itemize the cost for the client. And I, in my experience, that wasn't always the best solution. And it left me feeling a little bit powerless, especially if the client said no to stuff. What do you think about that advice as a an equine vet who probably had to go over the costs like themselves most of the time. Yeah. I I think cost is so related to care Mm -hmm. that when you advocate that discussion about cost, then you're not part of the response. You're not part of the conversation about care. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So on one hand, I get it because veterinarians historically in general, we're really good at negotiating down. And so we'll look at it. Something like, Oh my gosh, that's so expensive. And we price it as we would think, and it's like, I can't tell them it's 2000 All right, $1,500. Yeah. Whereas, you know, usually the, the non-vets are better at saying, like, hey, this stuff is expensive. All right, we're, we're going to charge it. So I, that's a point. But, I mean, I think you just need to have training with the vets, and there's ways of doing that. But I think when you're talking about care and the questions that will arise, so if you're going to give two or three options and you're talking price and somebody's like, well, what happens if we do this or do that? Yes, a well-trained, you know, registered technician can discuss it. But I think when you, as a veterinarian, you remove yourself from this conversation, you lose a lot of control. And I think you lose a lot of that relationship with the client, that trusting relationship. So, yeah, I, I, I think the vet needs to be part of that conversation. 
Yeah, you just you just mentioned trust. And I think that's very, that's very reflective of my experience, which is that if you kind of like, don't run away from the problem, you know, face the music with the client, like, I don't want to have this conversation any more than you do. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, like, nobody likes talking about money and asking for money. And we're asking for a lot of money. Um, I mean, even, you know, you were saying like, you know, a thousand dollars, that's a lot of money, especially to somebody sitting in a vet clinic with a cat, you know, um, they're not expecting to spend a thousand dollars on this cat. And so, uh, saying like, I know this is, you know, this might come as a surprise, but like, let me break it down for you. And then we'll talk about if there's anything that we can do to keep the cost down, um, if we have to. And I, there's something about that that just like, it makes us a little bit vulnerable, um, and that vulnerability on our part creates more trust with the client, I think. So I think we have to have that conversation of the, uh, the expense versus the value. Yeah. And so you can talk about, well, and be very frank. Yes, this, this, is, this is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You're like we're, we're talking five digits. Yes, this is yeah. expensive. Um, but this is the reality of the cost of care. Yeah. And, and as you said, you break it down. And here are the components Yes, and you know, I and I would say the one thing I have found in my travels is that Americans are better with those discussions than Canadians <laughs> because of our of our government funded uh, healthcare. Yeah, we have no idea what medicine costs. Yeah, and so it's free, but well, it's yes. not, but it's free. And so yeah. when we start talking about pet healthcare. Um, that's a harder discussion. Yeah, although we are very good at forgetting that we have paid like five to eight hundred dollars that month for that that sure. health insurance, and so we're we're forgetting that we've already forked out a huge amount of money for, for sure. that care that then only costs two grand. You know, yeah. um, so uh, I am very good at forgetting that. Anyway, it's like, oh well, that's a written off expense. You know, I haven't thought about it. Um, it just happens, and it's it's a lot. Um, so yeah, it, there's no perfect model, but I definitely agree that at least, you know, when somebody gets a bill for their knee surgery and it's, you know, $40,000 just for this part of it, uh, that is definitely a wake up call for us. Um, okay. What about insurance? Like, since we're talking about that, uh, mm-hmm. as long as I've known horse people and had horses in my life, um, I've known about equine insurance. Like, uh, you know, I showed horses growing up and we always had insurance. Um, but pet insurance has been pretty slow to take, you know, to catch on in this country. And- yeah. One of the reasons why equine insurance is slow to pick up is just the cost of the horses. Yeah. You know, so when you have, you know, a high-end show horses, and I've known people that have, you know, you're talking to, you know, a horse that has won a bunch, and it's quite valuable, and you ask, well, is it insured? Like, no. And you're like, why? Well, we have four like this, and to insure them, we just, you know, you can't afford the insurance on them. Yeah. So I think it's below 10% in North America. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty low. Yeah, that really that really surprises me, but I guess... You know, there are. If I had a an older horse, retired horse, a backyard horse, I probably wouldn't insure that horse. I insured the show horse because if he colicked or something, I was really going to need that um, because I wanted to be able to do surgery on him. And yeah, um, but I think these are where we have to have these proactive conversations with with clients. Is an unexpected expense will happen at some point in the animal's life. It's Mm kind of if you get away without it. 
you're lucky or you didn't notice it. Um, but it's going to happen. And I think as a vet practice, I think we need to have discussions with clients, uh, maybe in how we onboard new clients, our welcome package, what have you, our discussions about the value of insurance, uh, other, you know, any financial provider to sort of like, you know, when something unexpected happens, there's not to be an emergency. It just, you know, could be a routine dentistry, but oops, you know, there's a lot of extractions that have to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what? We, there are solutions in place that are going to make things easier for you at the time, as opposed to, oops, we're here. Now we have to deal with it. Yeah. There's, I, that was a question I was going to ask you, because there seems to be a big reluctance. Like this profession, I've never met a group of people who like talking about money less. Mm. <laughs> And I think it's because we all got into this because of our hearts and not because we wanted to get rich. And so um, we really just hate talking about it. And good care does cost a lot. I had a, my first boss wouldn't let us say expensive and cheap. He would he would say, um, you know, it costs more or it's more cost effective. So I got very used to not saying cheaper. This is the cheaper option. It's a more cost effective option. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I... I feel like the big reluctance on the part of vet teams um, is that we don't want to seem focused on the money. We don't want to be like, hey, just so you know, we're going to be asking you for a lot of money, like pretty much every year forever. (laughs) And how would you say, so I I liked what you said about including, you know, if you have like a welcome packet or something when new clients get a new animal or they join your practice or, you know, that puppy visit, it just becomes par for the course to sort of include financial information. But do you have like tricks or tips for how we can sort of phrase that and approach that conversation without seeming like we're like trying to prepare the client for the fact that this is going to be super expensive. Yeah. Well, the one thing I wanted to say is that we, you know, I think the best practices is to involve, is to train as many people in your organization other than vets about money. So you mm-hmm. can have these discussions because often the client will be there with a technician. Yeah. Well, the you know the doctors out of the room just like we'll be way at our truck and the and the conversation will be happening and so mm-hmm. they need to be able to have some you know comfort talking about money. Yeah. Um, you know one you know there's a, a few things that we just say is that you know starting off is we want what's best for your horse, dog, cat, hamster, whatever. Um, but the cost of the diagnostics and treatments would be a challenge for everyone. So let's think about options that can make this affordable so we're doing the best for your horse. And I think always coming back, uh, as you said earlier, is that healthcare is expensive or there's an expense associated with it. Mm-hmm. Let's not skirt that. Let's confront the, you know, the elephant in the room. It's just like we're going to talk about money, but we're talking about it in context of what is optimal for the health care of your, your particular animal. Yeah. Um, you know, you know we, we, so we'll talk about, you know, like, you know, we're not set up to offer extended terms, which is why we partner with companies that can help you. Um, you know, you know, payment plans for large expenses are common. I was online looking at uh, pricing an iPad the other day. You yeah. Know, you know, so, so much of what we're doing in life is, based on payment terms. And so mm-hmm. it is common. And I think um, millennials are, are more, or Gen Z's are more uh, open to that. 
there are a lot of companies out there promoting that services. I, I think uh, some of us who are getting older, it's you know we're sort of like, oh, if I don't have the money, I shouldn't be able to afford it. I shouldn't pay for it. But uh, you know, it's different. Yeah. So just let's just have the conversations. This AHA podcast is brought to you by Care Credit. Care Credit understands that all veterinary teams are busier than ever. To help patients get the care they need, the Care Credit Health and Pet Care Credit Card allows clients to access a budget-friendly financing experience anytime from anywhere on their own smart device. They can learn, see if they pre-qualify, apply, and even pay if approved, all on that smart device. With just a tap, they have a friendly, contactless way to pay over time for the services and treatments their pet needs, whether it be a general, referring, or specialty hospital, as long as they accept the Care Credit credit card. I like that, and it follows the trend of sort of um, authenticity and, like, you know, sort of supporting brands that you feel are telling the truth to you that I think younger, gen- like millennials and younger seem to really identify with. It's like they're willing to pay more for something if they really believe that it's for a good cause or for the right cause. And that um, reminds me of a comment that you had said. We had a pre-call before this um, a couple weeks ago, and you had said that a lot of times the equine vet is the last one to see the horse, and it's like after the client has exhausted all the other options. Mm-hmm. So they've like been on the their online forums, and they've had the chiropractor out who may or may not be a vet, and they but it's probably a different vet. You know, it's like the client has three vets depending on what they're going to want done, and um, you know they might have a lay dentist. We won't even get into that, but you know clients will talk to everyone they can before they have you out, and then you come out and the the treatment that you're offering is the right treatment, but things are more advanced now. And also it might cost more because it's been going on for a while and you haven't seen it. Um, How can, do you feel like the best medicine for that is to try to get around it and say, okay, we're going to try to educate clients so that they don't do this. Or do you feel like that's just the behavior in the society we live in now? And so now our goal is really to focus our energy on, having those transparent cost conversations about what you're getting for that value and why it's important to be prepared. Sort of like, do you fight a bad review with just, you know, a bunch of good reviews or do you respond to it? <laughs> you know, I think the right answer for everything is always, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> but so when I first encountered and we were having this discussion, you know, it was just like this, this horse showed up with us a year later and they've gone through everybody and, and by the time they get to us, their budget is exhausted. So I talked yeah. earlier in this, you know, this, this lifetime of care is that people save money. Well, at the time they got to the vets, the money had been gone. And so you have to wonder, okay, so why do they not want to come to us first? That's really the first question. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, a general perception of veterinarians? Is this a person who is never going to spend the money anyhow? You know, so there's a lot of variabilities. What we recommend, what we do in our own practice is develop that reputation of trust uh, of the thorough diagnosis. Um, you know, some people go to a vet in the equine world because I think uh, the people are much more promiscuous of the vet use. Yes. And as you said, people often have three or four vets. And so they'll try one vet because, you know, you're in a barn and the three or four vets service the barn. So you don't really have that captive audience. And so... 
you know, people will come to us and say, you know, I heard that you were expensive, but after I saw what you did is you actually got an answer. Mm-hmm. And, and with my previous uh, other experiences, you know, there'd be two or three visits. We would try one course of treatments uh, and that didn't work. And then we would try another. And when you add all that up, it's well, way more expensive than what we paid for one visit with you. So I think developing that reputation as a practice of that transparency of that you're doing the best with the for the best for the care of the animal but there's a price associated with it and you can't be embarrassed or ashamed or dismissive of it it's part and parcel yeah we want to pay people well you know we want to give people time off we want to have great diagnostics all of this costs money so we can't be skirting it Especially now when it seems like it's harder and harder to find equine vets and there are areas that are, you know, sort of equine veterinary deserts now because they, you know, they just don't have enough vets to work all the hours and drive all the miles. It's it's everywhere. I mean, I mean, one of the things I've learned from, you know, this, this global approach and the clients I've had, they're having the same conversations in Australia and Germany Mm -hmm. and Dubai. And it's not just equine, it's all species. I mean, I get get Google alerts on veterinarians. I come up every day and usually the first three or four is some newspaper and could be Nevada, Pennsylvania, wherever. It's like shortage of vets. How do our clients, you know, what are pet owners to do? It's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's almost like there are problems in the profession that we need to address. (laughs) It's almost like that. Shocking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But... You know, I, I just really, the the honesty and forthrightness that you're talking about really appeals to me. It works when we're talking about any type of conversation with clients, I think. It's just like not skirting the truth, trying to be direct with them as early as possible, as often as possible. Um, and at least at the end of the day, if things don't go the way that you wish they would have, you can sleep well at night knowing that you did everything yep. you could to communicate well and clearly to them. Yep. Yep. That's what I say. There's the cost and then there's the value. And the value is what person thinks of, you know, with the result minus the cost. Mm -hmm. And we don't, you know, in our profession, we don't always get great uh, patient outcomes. It's just the nature of our business. Uh, But I, you know, we always talk about client outcomes versus patient outcomes. And you could do the best patient outcome. You've done the most, you know, current surgery with the newest technology but if you haven't discussed the pricing and aftercare and all that with the client and they're upset we've you know it's bad client outcome it's like going to a restaurant you can have the best meal but when the service is surly you're mm-hmm. never going back there yeah. you can have a, a, a mediocre meal but when they're fawning over you and you feel like you're special you're going to go back what okay so last question before i let you go but i i I'm thinking about how much aftercare um, that you just mentioned, how much of that is involved in most sort of horse things that, you know, are more than just something super minor, you know, whether it's like, and horse people love to like do stuff. It's like, like we got to put the cream on it. Like if there's a cream to put on it, we want to do that. But also, you know, wrapping legs and cold hosing and hand walking and resting and, you know, put them in the round pen for 20 minutes a day and then work up to 30 minutes. It's, there's so many instructions usually, and people are busy and they're at boarding barns and you don't necessarily know how the boarding barn is going to handle it or if they have enough staff to do it. There's just so many factors in horse aftercare um, when something happens. And so a lot of the success, uh, you know, a lot of the outcome depends on the horse owner. Um, Is that a conversation that you have too, which is like, hey, this is going to cost more in the end if you don't do this? 
Yeah, and I think there's two approaches to that. So let's say we talked earlier about the older horse that might go for surgery. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be this bit of aftercare. Surgical aftercare is it's it's more patience, you know. There mm-hmm. could be complications. And so yeah. which may you know require another visit back to the the surgical facility. Um but when you're talking about things like laminitis or founder or wounds or what have you, as you said, lots of bandage changes, lots of cold hosing. There's a lot of, and we talk to them when we're making decisions like, okay, here's the price for us to address today. But, you know, the success in the outcome is dependent on how much time you have. And that's, again, it's like money. You've got to have that frank conversation because if somebody's like, I can't spend two hours a day aftercare. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, well, maybe we're going to try option C, like, it's just not going to work. And so, again, back to our being trust, trustworthy, being transparent, mm-hmm. you know, you, you sort of can't do this, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll get them in there because it's best for the horse, but then you realize that the care is going to diminish afterwards. Nobody wants to see that. And I think when clients get surprised by the time and expense of the aftercare, often the aftercare is more expensive than the procedure, mm. uh, they can get pretty annoyed. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Surgery is not the end end game, um, and that's the case with like a TPLO too or a foreign body surgery. You know, it's a there's so many things that have to happen after that for the outcome mm-hmm. to be good. So that's a really good point, and I do think that we in small animal do sometimes let that slide because we're just so focused on getting the client to say yes to the treatment that we want to do at that moment. But like, it's like the blocked cat, right? If you use all the client's money to unblock the cat one time, mm-hmm. there's a very good chance that cat's going to block again. And then what? And then the client's mad because you use all of their money. And that might be what you ha- what happens, you know, to him one time, you hope for the best. But like, if you haven't had that conversation, that sets you up for failure. Yeah, I really, uh, you know, as we're talking and the, the theme is really coming out is having these expansive conversations, not just this moments of time. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, here's what's going to happen if you don't. Here's what happens if you can. Here's option two. Um, and, you know, guide people. You know, the one thing is not giving too many choices. That just confuses people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, At a certain point, people kind of want to be told what to do, but they... Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you see a role... I keep thinking of more questions I want to ask you. I'm sorry. Yeah, go do you Do you see a role for telemedicine here or like telehealth, you know, um, being employed to have some of these conversations? If you're like in a time crunch and like, you know what, um, I got to run because I got a colic um, to go treat or I need... I have three patients waiting and, you know, all my exam rooms are full. I don't have the staff to have a long conversation about this right now, but I, I will have somebody call you. We'll set up a video call and we'll have this conversation face to face at another time. Um, is that something that you do or have done or seen done? We don't do it. I would love to do it. You know, I think in our profession, I don't know how much the pushback is in companion animal. I know there's a lot of people talking about it when the pandemic first hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how much of that has lingered, but I think with the shortages that we're having of not just veterinarians, but support staff, I think that's, uh, could be an essential tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, like anything, we need to know the limitations of it. Yeah. Um, I just always hearken back to, I remember once somebody's calling me from a horse show saying their horse had a laceration on a, on a 
over a joint. I said, send me a picture. It looks superficial. I'm like, you know what? You don't have to pay for an emergency fee. Trying to think of how I can save him some money, mm-hmm. you know, and just as we've been talking about, and I said, you know, one of our, my colleagues will be at the horse show there tomorrow. They can have a look at it, save you money. Don't worry about it. Well, he called me the next day and said this was a deep penetrating wound that oh, just nearly man. missed a joint. Oh. And, and that could have been catastrophic. And so there's limitations with telemedicine is that we're only able to see two dimension. And depending yeah. on, the, on the color of the fur or the hair, it, it may give us false confidences. But, you know, I've talked to behaviorists and they're like, I can do my best consults with telemedicine yeah. because I'm seeing them at home. And when I say, you know, show me what they're doing and what. What does it look like? Yeah. Beautiful. They can see it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and that, I think, is a, a whole other you know, can of worms to open is how accurate a diagnosis can be, even for something that seems very simple over telemedicine. Um, and I think maybe telemedicine, it technically is telehealth that I'm talking mm-hmm. about, but maybe I'm thinking of it in a slightly different light, which is you've already seen the patient, you've already established the recommended treatment. It's not a dire emergency where you have to make a decision at that time, or it's a preventive care exam and you've yeah. done it and you know that the client is anxious about money and rather than rush the conversation and let them sort of leave feeling flustered and anxious about it, you you say, okay, we're going to continue this conversation after you've had a chance to think about it and, you know, before we decide what to do going forward. And then we can actually have maybe 15 minutes to talk about just this versus trying to rush it during an appointment that's already going over. I, I would have appreciated that option a few times, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, we all say to everybody, you know, I've, get, I've dumped a load of information on you. You're yeah. going to go home. You're going online. Yeah. Let's, yep. Let's, you're going to do, do it. Yep. So let's talk tomorrow because yeah. you're going to have even more questions tomorrow yeah. and after you've slept on it. But to your original point, I think this is where telemedicine, I think, has a great uh, opportunity is in follow-ups. Because yeah. you said, you know, I just need to see how this dog is moving or yeah. how this horse is moving. I can see that on video. Yeah. You know, don't present an open wound and ask me to do it. Does it need to see a vet? Like, Yes. Yes. <laughs> or when people send you a picture on Facebook Messenger and it's like, you know, it's a massive picture yeah. and you're seeing the wound like this and you're like, yeah. I, okay, I, I'm i not going to know anyway, but like, yeah. yeah. So I think so. And, I, you know, and so we've been looking at that. And one of the things we've been looking at, again, for the affordability of it is building it into the price of the initial exam. Oh, yeah. I love that. So let's say you come in for, you know, I'm just going to talk about horses. It's a lameness exam. We're going to charge you X dollars, but now our new price is going to be X plus, And that includes two free telemedicine consults at oh. regular times. So when you're calling them up and you want better compliance, because again, we want what's best for the pet. And if you don't want somebody saying, uh, um, I don't have time or I don't have the money this week, but they're all like, you know what? I've already paid for it. Yeah. I might as well do it. So yeah. right, let's do it. I love that. I, I think that's a fantastic idea. And it makes that initial vet exam seem like a better value because you're yes. getting, I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's a better value, but I'm saying you're getting like, you're getting more for that money and you're not yeah. like, well, what, just for him to look at, you know, is this much money? Um, I, I think that's great. It's all about that perception. And we are definitely trained to see a package deal as being a better value. Yes. hundred percent. Um, well, uh, I, I think this is great. I, th- I think you're, you're showing in this conversation, and, and we had um, actually the week that we're recording this, so today uh, we had Andy Davison um, 
Andy Davison's episode come out and she is, her background is in equine as well. She's an LVT. Um, and I really love that because we tend to view these worlds as so separate and it's, it's all humans mm-hmm. dealing with animals that they love and money, which no one has enough of. And yep. communication seems to be the key. With animals, I can't tell you what's wrong with them. Yes, exactly. Yes. What fun would that be if they could? Exactly. <laughs> um, well, Dr. Mike Pownell, this has been really fun. Um, I really appreciate your input here. And to care credit, like, thank you so much for introducing us, because I think this is a really good perspective to have. Um, is there any place that you'd like to send listeners slash viewers to to learn more about you and your business or um, resources that you think would be helpful? Sure, they can just go to the website of our vet practice, www.mckeepanel.ca. Fantastic. And we'll put a link, we'll drop a link to that equine lifetime of care study in the, um, and I think there's been a couple of sort of offshoot articles about it that are really good, um, help summarize the data. So we'll put those in the show notes also. And um, I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Mike. My pleasure. Anytime. This was fun. Thanks to everyone for listening and watching. We'll catch you next time on Central Line. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Central Line, the AHA podcast. If you love what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. For more resources to help you simplify your journey towards excellence in veterinary medicine, we invite you to visit aha.org. That's A-A-H-A dot O-R-G.